How y'all doing this morning? Great. Great. Let me ask you this. Do you feel blessed? What types of things come to mind when I ask you that? Do you feel blessed? I mean, would you consider yourself to be blessed? What do you ultimately base that on? You think about your daily life, what do you base it on? The fact that you're healthy, that your family's doing well, you base it on how much money you have in the bank, you base it on just how you're feeling that day, oh, I feel good today, so I'm blessed. I feel bad today, I'm not blessed. Did anyone here think about their position before God in Jesus Christ? Is that where you find your blessing? There's a passage that we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, announces to us that if you are in Christ, that you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is yours right now. Every spiritual blessing. Now, I wonder, are you living in light of that truth this morning? You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe that. The Bible says so. I believe that. It's another thing to live like that were true. Do you believe that in Christ, God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Are you here today because you're thanking him and praising him for his blessings that you have already received? Or are you here for some other reason? Now, maybe we need a little bit of help thinking about this. So when I say spiritual blessings, what immediately comes to mind? Now, this is an open question. I'm actually looking for feedback here, right? When I ask the question, what are these spiritual blessings what, you know, that we've received, what are some things that you think of? Don't be too quick to chime in. The Holy Spirit, thank you. Forgiveness of sin. Sanctification. Sanctification. Inheritance. Inheritance. Very good. Some guys are reading ahead, I think. Right. (laughs) Adoption, right. Anybody think of election? The spiritual blessing of election. Now, I don't mean election like cast your vote election, but I mean that God shows you before the foundation of the world election, the doctrine of election. Does anyone consider that to be a spiritual blessing? Well, Paul does. This passage commends that. Now, I'm guessing that the idea, the doctrine of election, might be a struggle for you. I was there, right? I struggled with that for many years. So it's not lost on me. But, but we need to know that according to God's truth, according to God's word, it's actually a reason to praise God. It's actually a reason to take comfort. It's actually a reason for assurance that God is going to complete what he began in you. And so this morning we're just going to jump right back right into this big doctrine because, let's face it, that's what Paul does, okay? He opens his letter to the Ephesians with a doxology. A doxology is simply a declaration of praise to the glory of God. Okay? So Ephesians 1, verse 3 through verse 14, is all one gigantically long sentence of praise to the triune God for all of the blessings that we already have in Christ Jesus. In this passage, Paul praises God for all that he has done to save us, to change us, to unite us as a new people, as a new humanity in Jesus Christ. Paul is magnifying God. He is praising God. He is declaring truth about God that we should adore him. He praises God for all that he has done to bring us to himself, for all the ways that he has blessed us spiritually by choosing us, by sanctifying us, by by redeeming us, by forgiving us, by giving us wisdom and insight into the knowledge of his will, by reconciling all things, and I mean all things in Christ, by giving us an inheritance and by granting us the Holy Spirit. All of these are ours in Christ. 
And though we can't possibly cover all of these blessings today, we're going to be pressed to cover the first one today. We're going to take time in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, to take a look at the spiritual blessing of election. So if you don't have a Bible, you need to use the one in the chair. It's, it's page 976 there. I ask you to turn in your Bibles there. Okay? And though this doctrine of election may be difficult, Paul's message to us this morning is really quite simple. Very straightforward. It says, praise God for the blessing of election. Praise God for the blessing of election. So if you would, read along with me. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now in this passage, God presents us with three truths about the doctrine of election that are essential if we are to understand election and if we are to praise him for it. Now the first is that election is a purposed blessing from God. Now, before we can look specifically at the doctrine of election, we first have to set our minds on what this passage tells us about God, about who he is, and about what he has done. So let's start there in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does anything kind of stand out in that one verse? Is there anything that's sort of repeated and declared maybe three times in that passage? Right? Blessing. Paul mentions blessing three times. The first time he says, blessed be God. He's saying God is blessed. The second time, he's mentioning God's gift of blessing, that he has blessed us in Christ. And the third time, he does so with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins this letter similar to the beginning of 2 Corinthians or the beginning of 1 Peter by praising God as the source of all blessing. That's important to understand this because when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a command. Hey, Abel, you need to bless God. You need to praise God. It's not starting with a command like that. No, this is a declaration of praise. He's simply saying, God is is blessed. God is blessed. This is the, where we get our word eulogy from, this ascription of praise. As the creator of all the universe, the God with the sovereign power to speak galaxies into existence, the God that causes life, that raises up life, the God who can raise the dead, the God who can command donkeys and infants and even rocks to praise his name, this God the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, he lacks no blessing. You can't add to the blessedness of God. God simply is blessed. Now, this is huge, right? Because when you're here and you're singing songs to the glory of God, you're not adding to the glory of God. God is glorious. When you bless God, you are not adding to the blessedness of God. God simply is blessed. He's the source of all blessing. Every blessing that ever existed, every blessing that you have received, will receive, you know, all of that is from him. He is the source of all blessing. So why we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow or come thou fount of every blessing. We don't add to his blessedness. He is the source of all blessing. And he is sovereign and all-sufficient, right? He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. And because of that, because you can't add to him, because he doesn't need your love, he doesn't need your affection, he doesn't need your praise, God is then free to give. 
to give lavishly because nothing depends on your reception or your reciprocity. You're turning it back around. God simply is blessed. And Paul here begins this letter overwhelmed by the glory and the perfection and the self-sufficiency of God. And as he introduces his letter with this declaration of praise, he simply erupts in worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is blessed. God is the source of all blessing. But Paul not only praises God simply for who he is as the blessed God, but for what he has done, that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This all-sufficient God, this God who has all blessings that you cannot add to his glory, he bestows blessings on those who are in Christ. He gives lavishly of spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, it's important to point out, Paul is not talking about physical blessings here. Okay, don't mistake that. We often think physical when we think about blessings and the fact that we've been blessed. Right? But that's not what he's saying here. Because, let's face it, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. He allows the wicked and the righteous to prosper. God, in His infinite wisdom and power and sovereignty, has raised up wicked nations and He has torn them down. He raises up He sets the boundaries of our days. Death, sickness, disease, suffering, pain, they come unilaterally to all people. Not that we all experience the same measure of those things, but it's a guarantee because we are fallen and because we live in a fallen world, this will be our lot. So this has nothing to do with physical blessings but spiritual blessings. And what does he mean by that? Well, we see that these are blessings that come from being united in Christ by faith, right? He has blessed us in Christ, so these blessings come from him. So what does that mean? Well, these blessings are those that are bestowed by the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those whom God has set apart as his saints, as his holy ones, as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus that we looked at last week. Right? These are spiritual blessings pertaining to, given by, belonging to the Spirit. So already, notice, notice the Trinitarian reference here. Right? The Trinity is present even right here in verse 3. That God the Father gives the blessing. That God the Son accomplishes the blessing. We have the blessing because of what He's done. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the blessing. We who are in Christ have these spiritual blessings now. This is a spiritual reality of who you are right now. If you are in Christ right now, then these are your blessings. But yet they're blessings that are are in the heavenly places. There's this already not yet type of thing happening there. These are yours now. Every blessing is yours now. But we get their fullest expression, the fullest manifestation, when we are with God, where He is, in His glory as we stand with Christ. So don't look at the idea of these blessings as something that you're waiting for one day. One day I will be adopted. One day I will have an inheritance. One day I will receive the Holy Spirit. No, these are yours now, in Christ. We'll have our fullest expression of them when we are with him for all eternity. We just sang about that a little while ago. And as we move closer and closer and closer to that end, to that glory, the more aware we are of these spiritual blessings in our lives. Right? It should be escalating. Is that the case in your life? Do you find yourself recognizing more and more your blessedness in Christ? Are you living in light of these blessings that you have? You should be. 
And so what are these spiritual blessings? Well, we've kind of mentioned them already, but, you know, it's important to point out that Paul doesn't leave us to guess, right? He doesn't leave us to kind of wonder about what they are. He tells us what they are in verses 4 through 14. Let's, let's point them out. They're in verse 4. There's election. In verse 5, we see adoption. In verse 7, we see redemption and forgiveness. In verse 9, we see a knowledge of his will. In verse 10, we see this cosmic union with Christ, that he is reconciling to himself things in heaven and on earth. And in verses 13 and 14, we see the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I missed the inheritance in verse 11. Verse 11, there's an inheritance, gift of the Holy Spirit in 13 and 14. All of these are ours in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ, the blessed God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every one of them. So if you are in Christ, you do not lack any. Do you get that? Do you really understand that about yourself? That you have right now every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, these are yours. Friends, do you recognize what a comfort that is for us? These are ours now. We're not waiting for them one day. We're not just living the Christian life by our own means, by our own strength. We're not just kind of floundering, waiting for the day when God just kind of picks us up out of this mess and we can go be with Him. These are ours now. To live for His glory now. To live in His truth now. To follow His ways now. So if you're here today, maybe you're struggling with that notion, am I secure in Christ? Friends, what comfort and assurance this passage gives us. It is not ultimately bound upon you and your obedience to God that provides your salvation. It is the God, the blessed God, who gives these, who has given these blessings to you. Let that spur you on to to holiness and blamelessness. Let that spur you on to live out the faith. Let that motivate you and compel you to move forward in hope because it's not dependent upon you, but upon Him, the blessed God who gives every blessing. The all-sufficient God, the eternal God, has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, meditate on that truth this week. It is huge. It will change your day, guaranteed. And so what does that mean for worship? Well, it means this, that you do not praise God or attempt to bless God in order to receive blessing from God. See, we have this tendency of this give-and-take relationship. This is how we operate in our sinful state. That, okay, if I bless God, then he'll bless me. If I bless him a little more, he'll bless me a little more. And so if I bless him and he doesn't bless me, then what is he doing? Why is God being so unfair to me? Well, that's not the way it works. God has already given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's nothing left to give. It's already there. The problem is you're blind to it. You don't see it. It's right in front of you. And so when we come to worship God, it's not about us trying to earn those things that we've already received. It's responding in joy and hope and celebration and love and praise and gratitude to God who has already given us that in Jesus Christ. Worship is not a work. It is not a duty. Worship is a joy, it is a delight, it is a response of praise and adoration and gratitude at the God who so lavishly gives this to us in Christ. And so now that we understand that about who God is, this blessed God, the God of all blessing, the source of all blessing, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, now we can deal with election. So look at verse 4. It says, Even as he, that is God the Father, 
chose us in him, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I understand that to be God the Father, but even if it's God the Son, it doesn't really matter because he's going to stand and judge over us too. So the first evidence that Paul states of this spiritual blessing that we've received in Christ is election, that God chose us. And that this choice is unconditional, having nothing to do with your first or your prior choice of him, have nothing to do with your own worthiness, because his choice is so that you can be holy and blameless before him. So you're not holy and blameless before him now, right? You're impure. You're defiled by your sin. You are blameworthy now. That's who you are right now. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So God's choice of us is unconditional. And when does this choice take place? Paul tells us that it took place before the foundation of the world. Before you existed, before anything existed, before God created anything, God decided God determined to reveal his glory by saving some people through judgment. We're going to unpack that further. The doctrine of election is God's revelation. This is not Calvin's idea. This is not Augustine's idea. This is not even first Paul's idea. This is God's idea. It's important to get that. God shows those who are his before the foundation of the world. Now, you've got to understand something. Election was not new to God's people. Okay, in the Old Testament, you know, even, even now, every Jew believes that they are the chosen people of God. Election is not new. Okay, even though it might be hard for us to grasp. In the Old Testament, I mean, just think about this. God chose the pagan Abraham out of all the other pagans in the world. The one pagan, Abraham. It's not like Abraham was this righteous guy. He was an idol worshiper just like everyone else in Ur. But God chose him. God chose his son Isaac, not his firstborn Ishmael. Because Isaac was the one that God had promised. God chose Jacob, the younger, the deceptive brother, rather than his older brother Esau. God chose that little, tiny, rebellious slave nation of Israel to be his covenant people, not all the other nations of the earth. I mean, even in God's choice of David as king, right? he's that ruddy little shepherd boy, the eighth son of Jesse. It shouldn't have been him. Now, you might say, well, David had a, you know, he was a man after God's own heart, but David was also a murderer, an adulterer, and a liar, and let's face it, pretty much led a number of his family members into ruin. Right? That's not holy and blameless. God's choice is not based upon any foreseen merit because no one existed before the foundation of the world. God's choice is based solely upon his good and sovereign purposes. If you need another example, here's one. Think about life itself. Did God sort of have a discussion with the dust of the ground when he decided to create Adam? Say, hey, hey dust, do you mind being made into a a man? Sure, that sounds great. Okay, let's go. No. Think about your own life itself. Did you will yourself into existence? Who here decided that they were going to be? No one. Since God's work, even your physical life is a direct result of God's good, wise, and sovereign choice to bless you with life. It's his choice, not yours. Now, I understand that people have a hard time with this. Right? And a lot of times people provide certain rebuttals. They come back with different options. The first one, you know, well, election has to be conditional. 
And so what they argue for is this. Listen, well, well, couldn't, couldn't God just look through the corridors of time into the future and be able to see that all of those who would choose him by faith, and so as a result of seeing their choice of him, he responded by choosing them? Isn't that the way it works? Well, I can tell you, you, you won't find any scripture to support that claim. You won't find any scripture to support that notion. It's a philosophical justification, but it's not a scriptural one. I mean, already here in Ephesians alone, in these first three verses, four verses, I mean, we we haven't even gotten far. Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He defines his audience as saints, by, as those who have been set apart by God. In verse 3 we say, see, that it's the God who is the source of all blessing, who by his own volition, by his own choice, apart from any merit within anyone else, decided to bestow his blessings upon other people. And now we see here in verse 4, the straightforward reading and accurate interpretation of this world, where it is, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's simply what it means. Even here in the first four verses of Ephesians is a strong, strong argument theologically and biblically for the notion of unconditional election. It is in no way dependent upon philosophical justification of God's relation to time or a faulty notion of what our freedom is. God's choice is not dependent upon that. No one is holy and blameless. Therefore, his decision, his choice, is unconditional. So if that doesn't work, some people come back by saying, well, maybe it's corporate election. Maybe, maybe Paul isn't referring here to individuals, but this corporate body, meaning that God chose Christ as sort of the big umbrella And all of those who choose Christ are then kind of under the umbrella. And because they are in Christ, they are now considered chosen. So God chose Christ, and all those who choose Christ are now chosen. That's the, the notion of corporate election. Now that might be so if this text read this. Even as God chose Christ before the foundation of the world, so that we who choose to be in Christ should be holy and blameless before him. But that's not what the text reads. And though the church is in view here, we also have to think about the applications of the blessings that Paul is talking about. I mean, think about it. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, scriptural understanding, unification, inheritance, faith, and receiving the Holy Spirit. All of these are individually applied, not just corporately applied. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Right? You, do you get what I'm saying? It's just, It's not that... God sort of corporately gave us an understanding of his will, but individually we don't have it. So God has bestowed upon that upon us as individuals. The blessing is applied individually, right? God didn't just corporately give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in each and every heart of every believer. God didn't just adopt us as an orphanage. He adopted us as individual sons and daughters. God didn't just sort of generally or collectively forgive this big pile that is our sin. But God forgave each and every one of the sins that I have committed, am committing, and will commit. It's individually applied. So the only other option after that is, is, well, universal. Right? Universal election. That God just chose everybody. Right? I mean, after all, I mean, look at verse 10. It kind of sounds like God's in the process of uniting everything to himself. Maybe that means literally everything. God chose everyone. Well, the problem is you still need to be in Christ. And that those who are not in Christ 
are still dead in their trespasses and sins, according to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Still having no hope and living without God in the world in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Still alienated from the life of God because of their hard-heartedness in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And still having no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ because the wrath of God is still upon them in chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. We haven't even left Ephesians. So it's clear. Election is God's sovereign choice from before the foundation of the world to set apart and to save a particular people in Christ. And as this passage will continue to unfold, it's going to become clear to us that election is God's prerogative, not our own. And though our minds cannot fully grasp how this is possible, Ultimately, we stand firm, we rest in the fact that it's true because God has revealed it to us. God has told us that it's true. I have to tell you, election is humbling. No one should boast in the fact that you are elected. We don't know ultimately who they are, and there's good reason that we don't know who they are. Spurgeon once said, if I knew who the elect were, if they had a yellow stripe down their back, I'd go and lift shirt tails and preach only to them. But I don't know who they are, so I preach to all. But it is humbling to think about it. What is it about you that deserves access to the gospel? What is it about you that deserves the privilege of being born in a place where you have the freedom to read Scripture? To have this wealth and this abundance of information to help guide you in truth. You know, when I look at it, it's like I could have just as easily been born in Saudi Arabia as here, having no access to the gospel. It was the mercy of God that I was born where I am. And even though I grew up in a very nominally Christian home, and I grew up going to a church that was theologically anemic and was afraid of concepts like election, so we never looked at Ephesians 1 or Romans 8 and 9. We stayed as far away from those as possible because it was scary. God in His mercy continue to reveal his nature, his character, his promises and purposes to me as I studied his word, as the Holy Spirit brought understanding to my heart. God, in his mercy, brought people into my life, faithful preachers and teachers and and writers and all of these great resources to help me to understand and see the beauty of God's sovereign choice over my soul because here was really the thing that I was missing. I deserved condemnation. I deserve hell. Election is no reason for boasting. It's reason to humble yourself and drop to your knees in praise of God. Some people have tried to argue if the doctrine of unconditional election is true, then those who have chosen have reason to be proud. But I just have to ask you this. Which is more humble? The man who says, though I am completely undeserving of God's mercy, he in his love chose to save me. Or the man who says, God saved me because I chose him. Do you realize how arrogant that is. That is tantamount to boasting about the fact that you said thank you because somebody gave you a priceless treasure. That's really what it comes down to. Hey, yeah, God, God, God gave me this. I couldn't possibly afford it. You know, I couldn't, I don't, I don't sort of deserve it, but hey, I said thank you. Really? You know, I remember thinking, and and, and maybe you do uh, too, uh, that this is not fair. Election is not fair. This is not fair. And on this point, I absolutely agree with you. It is not fair. But you know what is fair? Hell. Hell is fair. Hell is what we deserve. 
And so the fact that God in his mercy and in his grace decided to choose to save any, to adopt any out of condemnation, out of judgment, that is not fair. That is not at all fair. It is not at all fair that the God of the universe condescended and took on flesh and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live, a sinless life, and he sacrificed that life unfairly by dying a gruesome and horrible death on the cross for sin to satisfy God's fair wrath against sinners like me. It was unfair That he rose from the third day to prove that God's wrath has been satisfied. That he was who he said that he was. That all people are going to stand before him in judgment. That he is ruling. That there is life and hope and, and just change being possible in our lives. That we will one day be reconciled to God unfairly because of what he has done. That is unfair. That's the only thing that's unfair. We rebelled against God. We were not holy and blameless. We, as it says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were like by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind enter unfairness, but God made us alive in Christ. God's choice is unfair. Nothing could be more unfair than God's sovereign work to unite any in him. And so God's sovereign choice of some is no reason to boast. And nor is it reason to to live however we please, as if to say God is going to save us anyway. I can do whatever I want to do, that I can sin that grace grace may abound. Though we were defiled by our sin, though we were blameworthy, God chose us in Christ for a purpose so that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose of this blessing of election. That we are to be holy and blameless before him. God's sovereign and unconditional election has this end. To take those who are sinful rebels, deserving of condemnation, and to make them pure, innocent children, whom he lavishes his grace upon for all eternity. This is God's work in us, but by his grace is a work that we participate in. We are not ultimate in that. We are very much secondary, but we still are active. According to chapter 4 and 5, you just need to read all of it. But because God's choice to unite us in Christ, because of Christ's work to redeem us from sin, and because of the Holy Spirit's work progressively to apply God's work in us, we are called to put off the old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that mean? You're not only declared holy and blameless because he sees Christ, but he's actually in the process of making you holy and blameless before him. God is at work to present you pure, clean, and spotless to himself. That if you are chosen, then you are called to reflect the nature and character of the one who saved you. You are to be holy and blameless before him. So election is a purposed blessing. There's so much more we could say about that. But So we are to live for the purpose to which you have been chosen. If you need an application point, you need me to spell that out for you right now, here it is. What to do as a result of being chosen by God. Ready? Live for the purpose for which you have been chosen. Pursue holiness and blamelessness. Now, For all of you still struggling with this notion, it's okay, all right? 
If God's sovereign choice and salvation is still hard, perhaps this second truth about elections will help. Not only is election a purpose blessing from God, but second, election is the manifestation of God's adopting love. Now, there's been a lot of debate on where these last two words in verse 4 go. Like if you're reading the ESV, you kind of notice that you've got a period in love, verse 5, right? It's kind of annoying. Most people think, oh, this is the worst, you know, break in history. Uh, Well, it's because in the Greek manuscript, there's no punctuation and there's no space. It is letter after letter after letter continuing on endlessly because they had limited, you know, paper was hard to come by and they're just trying to make every bit count, okay? So you got really where in love fits is dependent upon where Paul would have paused in his writing or took a breath in his dictation. (laughs) That's the difference right there. We have no access to that. So where does it fit? Now, these verse numbers were added in the 16th century. And so obviously, the person who wrote in the number five for you that you see in your Bibles, this person understood this passage or interpreted this passage this way, that we should be holy and blameless before God in love, period. Okay? That's how he took it to to mean. That's how the King James translates this verse. Love would describe the manner in which we were to be holy and blameless before God. So not only were we to stand before God pure, but we were to love him and others, right? That's the manner in which we are to have love in our holiness and blamelessness before God. But yet I think, as I try to interpret this passage, that love is implicit with what it means to be holy and blameless. That you can't truly be holy and you can't truly be blameless if you don't love. They're inseparable. So that would be kind of, that would be redundant. And then in addition to that fact, I look at it, and this passage is not talking about us. Ultimately, it's talking about God. It's focusing on God's blessing us, God's choosing us, God's adopting us, God's everything us. The focus is on God. And so it seems best to follow the ESV or to follow the NASB or to follow the NIV on this one and interpret it this way, that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That love describes the manner in which God predestines us for adoption. I think that best fits the focus of this entire passage because this text is not ultimately about us, it's about God. Now, if people are uncomfortable with the idea of unconditional election, then they hate this word predestination. That's a scary word. Well, what does it mean? Predestination means to, to, to predestine means to foreordain. It means to mark out or decide upon beforehand. It is to predetermine. It is to designate beforehand. That's what it means. That in love, God has predestined us for adoption as sons. Some people try to soften it by interpreting it this way, that, that it's not really God's decisive action. It's really God's goal. This is what God is trying to achieve. So predestination is not God acting. It's God kind of sitting back before the foundation of the world. He's kind of down there with, with pen and pencil, and he's thinking about his goals for his chosen people, obviously dependent upon their choice of him. And so one of the goals that he wrote down in predestination was, well, my goal is to adopt these folks if they're willing to have me. But is that really what this passage means? Is that really what it says? That this is God's pre-thought-out goal? That God was thinking and he, did, he really, really wanted to adopt you as sons if you're only willing to come to him? Well, let's let Ephesians help us to understand what he means. Look at verse 11. Same word is used here. It says, In Christ... We have obtained an inheritance, again, past tense, blessing already received, having been predestined according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I have to ask you, does this sound like a mere goal? 
Does verse 11 sound like a goal to you? What would be the goal of that passage if that's what it means? No, it says that God pre, it's God's predetermined action that he works to fulfill his will and all things go according to the counsel of his will. That's what it means. God elects with the view to adopt us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. In love, God elects, God predestines with the view to adopt you as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. This is not something that's hard or cold and callous. It's not as though God is a distant God and he's just like, well, you all are undeserving, so I, you know I'm just going to take my pick. Uh, Jason, uh, let's see, Matt, uh, Evan, uh, Quinn, uh, Ben, uh, yeah, Kyla, she's upstairs, uh, Phyllis, whoever. Uh, I'm just that's, that's who I'm going to pick because it doesn't matter. Nor is it like the kid on the playground. Y'all have done that, right? You've been on the playground, and you're not the best kid on the team, right? And you've got this one kid, he's like, he's he's flunked two years. He's the best, you know, player because he's like, he's, you know, 12 inches taller than anybody, and his arm is bigger than your head. And, of course, you're playing dodgeball. You know he's going to kill you if he's not on your team, so you want to be on his team, right? And so he's just like going around. He's like, oh, you guys are horrible. I'm going to pick you and you and you and you. That's not the way it is. That's not the way it is with God's adopting election, God's adopting predestination, God's adopting love. This is not cold and callous. It's not some distant God who's standing back, disconnected from you. Read it. It is personal. It is intimate. In love, he predestined you to have a relationship with him as a son and a daughter. That is amazing. Election and predestination are intimate and relational. Here's an, also an interesting thing. A bit of homework if you want to do it. If you go up and you, and you look through Scripture, at any time it talks about God's choice, God's election, God's choosing, God's elect people. If you look up predestination, you'll see that within verses... It's always mention of God's love. You never have to go far at all. A couple of examples. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In fact, I think the longest passage, the most separation between predestination and love is actually Romans 8, 29 and following. Romans 8, 29 and following. I'm just going to read part of it. I won't read all of it. It says, For "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be first among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And skipping down to verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can Paul say that? Because God has predestined us. God elects because he loves. He predestines so that you might be adopted as a child in Christ. Election and predestination are inseparable from God's adopting love. Does God have a general love for all things, all people, all of his creation? Absolutely. But God has a special love for his adopted. Now, I'm sure that Jim could speak into this from his own experience, but I'm going to use an illustration from some friends of ours, the Murrays. The Murrays 
uh, decided to adopt. And in the process, they kind of went from one child to wanting two children. They wanted girls. They ended up being presented with the option of boys, you know, this whole process. But adoption is a process. If you know anyone who's adopted, you know that it's this process that people kind of go through, kind of assessing things until they come, come to a conclusion, and these options are put forward. They were going to adopt these two boys from Vietnam. They got pictures of these little boys. They learned about these little boys. They knew when they went over to Vietnam that they were going to get these two little boys. We're going to adopt these two little boys. And I remember talking to them about their experience while they were over there in Vietnam. We actually Skyped with them a couple of times. And, and uh, you know, they, the, 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 because the orphanage was outside of town, they would actually take all of these couples. There were multiple couples that were adopting, and they would take them all out there to the orphanage at the same time. They'd ride in the bus together. They'd sit in the same room together, and, and each of them having these pictures of these kids that they were going to adopt. And so they started sharing them with one another, you know, and you're seeing this little girl or that little boy or these little kids. And, and the, the Murrays were just kind of overwhelmed by the fact. It's like, man, we love these kids. We could have adopted any one of these kids. I mean, just look at that. I mean, all of these people are here to adopt, but these are our kids right here. And, and as they were sitting there, you'd occasionally they would see kids walk by in the hallway or maybe walk by the window or even a kid kind of peeking his head in and looking around. And, and their, their hearts were just overwhelmed with love for these kids who needed to be adopted. They loved them. They could have adopted any one of them. It was amazing. I mean, it's just, they just... Their hearts went out to every single child that was there. But when they finally got to meet their two little boys, though they felt this love for every child there, it was different with William and James. These boys are ours. They're ours. It was beautiful. The Murrays loved and were concerned about every child they saw that day. But it wasn't the same love that they had for the two that they took home. That was a special adopting love. I love all your kids. I love every one of them. I love talking to them. I love playing with them. I love spending time with them. I love going upstairs and seeing them up there. But your kids are not my kids. And I might let your kids come over and stay the night with my kids at my house, but I'm going to tell you something. This is a guarantee. You're going to have to come and get your kids in the morning because they're not my kids. And maybe, maybe this is still foreign to you. You're like, you know, I don't know anyone who's ever adopted. I don't have kids. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me just throw out another illustration for you. Pretty much every one of us in this room has gone at some point to the hospital to see a newly born baby. Am I right? We've all had friends or family members who have, you know, they've had kids, and we've gone to the hospital, and we've looked through the glass to go and see their kids. Everybody's gone to a, a hospital nursery, right? And when you go up there, it's really exciting. You know, you go, and you're looking through the window, and you see all of these little kids, and unless they're, like, pooping or screaming their heads off or being circumcised, you just, like, you ooh and awe over the fact that here they are, these cute little, look at their little toes, look at their little hands, oh, they're so sweet, oh, and you just kind of make over them, right? Until you see the name on the bassinet for the child that you came to see. Or until the nurse picks her up and brings her over to the window so that you can get a good look at her. And when you do that, in that moment, every other little toe in the room, no matter how cute they are, have been forgotten. Why? Because that's the one you came for. That is the one you came for. God's adopting love is intimate and personal. You don't get more intimate and personal than God sacrificing his one and only son, his beloved, that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. You think that God doesn't care about that? No. God loves deeply. Because of Christ's 
we can belong to him as dearly loved sons and daughters. And apart from any merit, any innate sense of worthiness, apart from any part of us as children choosing him, God set his adopting love on us. His electing love, his predestining love, he set that on those whom he has set apart as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. God gave his only begotten son for them. So if you are in Christ, you have been adopted. That is who you are. That former life is gone. I am defined by my adoption in Christ. That's a fitting description that Paul uses there. This is not about your first choosing him, but about God first choosing to adopt you. And he does so according to the purpose of his will. Now this word purpose can also be translated good pleasure. And I think that both meanings are at play here. That it was God, you were adopted by God to God according to his purpose, according to his plan. But again, this is not cold and calculated purpose. It was God's good pleasure to adopt many sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. God was pleased to do it because God loves. The question for you is, are you adopted? Is that really who you are? Has God set his adopting love on you? Do you realize your own unworthiness and rebellion against him? Do you stand in awe of how God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Can you sense God drawing you to himself? Do you see his love at work in you? Do you feel your desires and your longings changing? Not wanting to be defined by the world, but wanting to be defined by who you are in him as his son, as his daughter. You no longer want to follow the course of this world. Your desire is to follow Christ. Do you desire to live holy and blameless before him? then receive God's adopting love by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. So election is a purposed blessing from God. Election is the manifestation of God's adopting love. And third, election is a reason to praise God. In verse 3, you know, Paul began this passage by ascribing praise to God. He's making this declaration, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4, he extols God for the gift of unconditional election from before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he praises God for his love and predestined, that he predestines us for adoption as Christ according to the purpose and good pleasure of his will. And now in verse 6 is the culmination, the ultimate Intention of God's election. In his predestining us for adoption as sons and daughters. This is the ultimate goal, the final purpose, the highest destiny of every son and daughter that chooses, that God chooses to himself, is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The reason for election. The reason why God is going to present you holy and blameless before him, the reason God lovingly predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ is so that the glorious grace of God might be praised. Do not miss this point. And just to be clear, Paul is going to tell you two more times in verse 12 and verse 14 to the praise of his glory. This is why you were created. This is the purpose of your existence. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But the definitive focal point of our glorifying God is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Grace that is revealed, grace that is given, 
Grace that is received only in the beloved. God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Now some of you may be thinking, well, why would God create a world that would fall into sin and then predestine some for adoption of sons and daughters? Wouldn't it be more glorifying to the praise of His glorious grace if God had saved all? Or maybe if God had just created a world in which no one fell into sin, wouldn't that be more glorious? Wouldn't that be just more praiseworthy to kind of see that than to see salvation through judgment? Well, you're going to have to thank my forebears for this answer, particularly John Piper, but he wasn't the one that came up with it, okay? I want to take credit where credit is not due. But this is how he answers it. First, we have to start out with this. No one deserves to be with God. Everyone has rebelled against God. Everyone deserves condemnation, eternal condemnation. Every single person. All have sinned and rebelled against him. There is no one who is condemned who has not deserved it. It's not like there's someone in hell right now that's just like, hey, I wanted to follow Jesus, but God said no. No. They're all rebels to the core. And in eternity, God's justice will be vindicated, meaning no one's going to go and stand before God and be like, you know, God, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. In the end, we're all going to realize just how fair God was. And we're going to stand in amazement of just how merciful God was. So that has to be the background. Now, when thinking back to the question, why would God create a world that would fall into sin and then only predestine some as to adoption as sons and daughters? Well, in salvation through judgment, meaning all have been judged and God saves some through judgment, the full range of God's perfections are shown meaning we understand who God is better as a result of it. Against the black backdrop of sin and eternal condemnation, the glory of God shines brighter. When God's goodness, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His justice are set against the blackness of our sin, the glory of God is magnified. If there was no judgment, would we be able to understand God's mercy. No, there would be no need for mercy. If there was no judgment, would we be able to understand grace? No, because there's no need for grace. If there was no judgment, would we understand the justice of God? Well, no, not really, because there's no reason for God to be just. If there was no judgment, would we be able to really understand God's love? No, we've not done anything that makes his love sacrificial. It's hypothetical at best. And the apex of God's glory, his grace, set against our sin, shines brightly. You all get this concept, right? You put light on a white background. Well, I mean, it shines bright, but not as bright as when you set it on a dark background, right? Light is brighter when you're in a pitch black room than it is if your room is full of light. God's glory is revealed as more glorious in salvation through judgment. And when we realize that our sin, that my sin, deserves the just wrath and eternal condemnation, that that is what I deserve, that that ought to be me. There's no reason why he's there and I'm here. There's no reason. I'm not better. And doesn't that change the way we think about ourselves in light of God? Doesn't that motivate us to overwhelming joy and praise and gratitude for what has been given? We worship and praise God's glorious grace in our salvation and we experience that grace all the more. It intensifies. It is magnified. It builds. It culminates in new and amazing ways when we realize that we do not deserve it. It moves us to joy. Gratitude at the gift of election, adoption, and redemption because we know that it is completely and utterly undeserved. 
You know, if you were basically good, then grace would not be grace. It's not really necessary or it's minimized into this point of like, you just need a little boost to get you over the hump to God. If salvation was ultimately dependent upon you as an unregenerate sinner, right, as someone without the Holy Spirit's work in your life, making a choice for him, then it proves that that's a work. That's something that you have done to earn your salvation. At that point, it's not grace at all. Grace is not grace at all. What grace is, is a reward. It's a payment because you earned it. At that point, if salvation is ultimately dependent upon your choice, everything hangs in the balance on your choice of him, then who is ultimate? What is ultimate? You are. It's about your glory and not his. But if all of us, by our sin, have earned God's just and holy wrath and eternal condemnation, if we understood that there is nothing that we can do to earn or to buy God's favor, but in his undeserved mercy, and though he didn't have to, God graciously saved some in his love by adopting them as sons and daughters, then with eyes wide open, we see all the more clearly the glory of God in our salvation and our love and affection for him overflows with astonishment and joy and utter gratitude. We praise God for his glorious grace. And so, friends, do not lament election. Praise God for the blessing of it. Let's pray together. Father, I'm reminded of the phrase, nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling Naked, come to thee for rest. But we know, we see in Scripture that salvation is all of grace. And we thank you for this undeserved favor that you've shown in Christ. Forgive us for failing to live in light of it. Forgive us for how we have resisted how you have revealed yourself in your word. Forgive us for the ways that we have still tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. Lord, I pray that we would take delight and great comfort in knowing that you are at work, that we would see election for what it is, this, this comfort, this assurance, this reason to praise you. We thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ, that you are not some cruel or distant God, some tyrant that is out there, but you are intimate. You are here. You are loving. We now have received every blessing in Christ as your sons and daughters. May that change our hearts. May we live to praise you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.